welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, 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 it has been quite the week again. Um, I mean, just the rapid pace at which information is coming out and new information around Trump and Ukraine, China, the impeachment. It's a it's it's a lot. It's a lot. But um, I've got a great episode up for you guys on the way. Um, This week's guests, I have two again, just because there's just so much going on. Normally, I don't have two guests, but there's just so much happening that I felt like two guests were necessary. Uh, first up is going to be Vicki Ward. She's a senior reporter for CNN, but she also wrote a book that came out in the spring called Kushner Inc. Now, I felt it was important to bring Vicki on because I am just over this corruption bullshit talk coming out of Trump and his supporters trying to claim that he didn't really ask for a quid pro quo and that it was all above board, this needling of Ukraine and now China, which he said last week openly to investigate Joe Biden and his son for, quote, corruption. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have corruption investigated. Please, okay? Spare me, spare me. And so my opening monologue this week is going to be dedicated mostly to going through some examples of the unbelievable conflicts of interest and corruption in this administration compared to what is being alleged and debunked, by the way, uh, concerning the Bidens. So Vicki Ward's book, Kushner, Inc., is um, all about the greed, ambition, and corruption of Jared Kushner and Ivanka while they're inside the White House. So I thought it was an appropriate time to have that discussion. Let's put some things in perspective. Um, so that's a great... I mean, when you hear some of the examples of what's going on with these people in the White House, you're, I'm telling you, your heads are going to explode. It's unreal. So anytime Donald Trump talks about corruption and how they you know, they want to get to the bottom of it, I just want to be like, shut up. Shut up, because it's all projection, and you, sir, are the worst. You're corrupt, your family's corrupt, your whole business life has been full of corruption, conflict of interest, and screwing people over. I mean, oh, so I'm fired up about this, if you haven't noticed, because I just can't take the hypocrisy. And his Republican supporters, they know better. The the elected members of Congress, they know he's full of shit, but they're scrambling because they, they just cannot possibly believe that a president of the United States, it's ever okay for a president of the United States to solicit foreign interference in an election and then hold up military aid or use leverage, the power of the presidency, the power of the U.S. government as leverage over allies who need us for military aid or whatever, trade negotiations. I mean, come on. It's so obvious. But, um, so that's, uh, that's Vicki Ward. So we're going to talk, I'm going to have a nice conversation with her that I think you guys will learn a lot from. And then the second interview is with um, the Atlantic's reporter, McKay Coppins. And McKay, why I decided to bring him on was because he wrote the cover story for the Atlantic magazine for October, and it's called Succession. And it's about very interesting dynamics between the Trump siblings, particularly Don Jr. and Ivanka. Some dynamics that I wasn't aware of. Some I knew, but um, some interesting things about the competition between who's going to be the heir apparent. And it may not be who you think. So stay tuned for that. It's an interesting conversation. So I thought they were uh, a nice compliment considering what's going on uh, right now in the news. Um, That's useful. So people can have a perspective on 
what the hell's happening because it's just freaking chaos every day. Trump's Twitter feed has been off the off the hook. He's out of control again, tweeting. I, I'm not even going to read any of them because they're just so insane. But if you follow Trump on Twitter, you know what I'm talking about. And it's almost like he knows that he's getting boxed in because it's just the overwhelming evidence that's coming out at a rapid pace from people who are inside, particularly in the intelligence community and the foreign affairs establishment. They're looking at this in horror. And so more people are speaking out, thank God. And we know now that there's uh, potentially a second whistleblower. They haven't filed a formal complaint yet, but the same attorney who represents the original whistleblower, who Trump and his, his minions have tried to discredit, I think, and failed at it. Um, the same law firm represents another person who, from my understanding, it's being reported, they have the firsthand knowledge of the Ukrainian mess. So they, I think they're one of the people that the original whistleblower used as a reference. So I guess they're weighing the pros and cons of coming forward, um, given the onslaught of attacks that will surely await them. Um, but just watching Trump's freak out about this should tell you all you need to know. When someone's innocent, they don't behave this way. It's the same thing with the Mueller report. This nonsense that the Mueller report was a big nothing burger, that's bullshit, okay? (laughs) Anyone who bothered to read it knows that it's a damning report. From volume one, there was collusion. And you should see the, the freaking detail and intricacy of the Russians' attack on our election process. It's scary stuff. It reads like a spy novel. Volume two, rife with obstruction of justice. But Mueller said he can't he can't indict a sitting president, so he's not going to make a recommendation. So the Mueller report was actually pretty damning. But because it was long and complicated, people's attention spans are short and it didn't spell it out in black and white. And, you know, and I'm sorry, but a lot of the country's intellectually lazy. They don't want to think that far if it requires some deductive reasoning. Oh, no, coll- no collusion. There was no crime. No crime. You don't have to have a crime necessarily to be impeached. As a matter of fact, you don't have to commit a crime to be impeached. Abuse of power is an impeachable offense. And back in the day, they didn't have all these different crimes that they have now in the books. Like bribery and treason, okay, those everyone knew. But all the other stuff that's going on today, like they didn't have all those laws back then. So they came up with high crimes and misdemeanors, which is an old English law term for abuse of power, basically. Um, lack of public trust, things like that from like the 1400s. So don't be caught up. Don't get caught up in this idea that if there's no crime, what's the crime? It's not illegal. It doesn't have to be illegal to be impeachable. And, and I encourage people, I know most people won't, but now may be a good time to brush back up on constitutional history and what our founding fathers were debating at the time. And, um, I actually did a, uh, I did a, um, a talk at the University of Delaware last week. Shout out to University of Delaware. What a great school. Really smart students, very engaged. And um, their political communications department invited me to come give a political talk. And um, the conversation was great. And during the course of that conversation, I was telling people, like, you need to go back and read what some of the debates between George Mason, Madison, and... Um, Rudolph, when or Randolph, when they were talking about 
putting in the impeachment part into the Constitution and the importance of that, because they desperately did not want a monarchy, right? We just fought a revolutionary war. We weren't trying to go through that again. And people worried about an imperial presidency. Like we need to have checks and balances to make sure we don't have that again ever. And that we have mechanisms in place to remove someone if they start to behave like that. And it's, it's worthy to go back and read those things. And you can see Madison talked about the, the, his concern about the president of the United States losing the public trust to a foreign power. So this was at top of mind for our founding fathers when they were creating the constitution. And what are we witnessing today? This president is so compromised when it comes to international relations. It's it's beyond me. And it really is beyond me that so many Republicans are either silent, running scared, or they're just trying to tell us that it was a joke, like Marco Rubio. I mean, the president of the United States, if anyone saw that bonkers press conference with the Finnish president who was visiting, that poor guy, he got stuck in a shitstorm last week when he was visiting. Donald Trump had another meltdown of a press conference because he was challenged by the media asking specifically, what were you looking to get from the Ukrainian president on the Bidens? What were you looking for? Legitimate question. He goes off, starts screaming and berating the, the AP reporter who asked him a question. And it was just, it, it was, it was nuts. And you have Marco Rubio and others saying that, oh, the president was just kidding when he was on the South Lawn getting ready to go to, I think it was the villages down in South Florida. He gave one of those annoying South Lawn helicopter um, gaggles where he said, hey, China, why don't you know you guys should should investigate the Bidens, too? What? Unbelievable, this guy. He, he spent a week denying that he did anything wrong. He's still tweeting that he had a perfect call with the Ukrainian prime minister. Then it says that he didn't ask for, for anything out of, out of sorts. Then he goes and he says, yeah, and, and I did ask him. That's right, because I'm interested in corruption. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a minute. And then he asks, then he says, hey, yeah, China, yeah, you guys should investigate it too, because Hunter Biden left China with a billion and a half dollars and blah, blah. That's bullshit, by the way, and I'm going to explain that also in a minute. I, I mean, it's bonkers. And over the weekend, I was on CNN because I was asked, the topic was basically like, where the hell are the Republicans on this, right? That the president of the United States acting like a crazy person, soliciting foreign governments. We've got a second, second whistleblower who's flirting with coming forward to talk more in detail about the Ukraine part of this. We find out that Rudy Giuliani was um, really uh, just completely freelancing on this. And, oh, well, we had the, the uh, special envoy, envoy, Kurt Volker, and the text messages between him, Gary Sondland, the ambassador to the EU, and Bill Taylor, another professional diplomat, all discussing basically the fact that they're, they're, a meeting with the new Ukrainian prime minister was contingent upon their cooperation in an investigation into, quote, 2016 and Burisma. And um, Bill Taylor, in one of the text messages, says, I think it's crazy to withhold security aid for a campaign, for campaign issues. I mean, it's right there. It's right there. These text messages were really explosive. 
But Gary Sondland, uh, Gary, I keep wanting to call him Gary. It's Gordon, Gordon Sondland, Gordon Sondland, who's the ambassador to the EU. By the way, Ukraine is not in the EU, but that's another story. He saw when he sees that text, it was clear that Bill Taylor was uncomfortable with what was going on. And it was clear in the text messages that he was trying to like establish a record because every time he started to bring up kind of the sensitive stuff, Sondland was like, call me. Or uh, let's get off text message. Uh, let's talk about this. Call me, you know, offline. <laughs> so I guess he caught on. But he comes back after he says, I think this is, as I said on the phone, this is Bill Taylor in a text message. As I said on the phone, um, are we, you know, I think it's crazy that we're doing, you know, that, that we're withholding security aid. And he also brings up this whole thing about, so are we saying that this is contingent upon investigations by Ukraine? Yeah. Then a couple hours go by and Sondland comes back with a very lawyerly response five hours later. No, I think you're misunderstanding the president's intention here. He said specifically there's no quid pro quo. Yeah. Okay. Well, these folks are getting brought in before Congress. They're going to talk about what was going on. The context is quite implicit and, uh, you know, the dam is breaking. The dam is breaking. Finally, finally. But Republicans were trying to bend over backwards to say, oh, the president was kidding about China. That's what Marco Rubio said, which was just infuriating. And I lit into Marco Rubio's ass on CNN on Saturday because he's such a disappointment. I really thought that Rubio had a lot more promise and that he'd be a lot more vocal. I mean, he's not up for reelection in 2020. So I mean, he's from Florida. That's a key state. But come on, man. You know better. And he's like really outspoken about how China is a human rights violator. They're they're currency manipulators. They're not our friends. He's been very tough on China. And he, you know, for him to try to make light of that and say that the president was just joking, asking a communist Chinese country to investigate an American citizen political rival is insane. Now, come on. So I, I went off a little bit on him on um on CNN on Saturday. The president went after Mitt Romney because he's like the only one that kind of sort of has a couple balls every once in a while. He'll come out and say something. And he condemned what President what Trump did. Not okay. It's troubling to be, you know, soliciting Ukraine and China. And Trump called him a pompous ass, literally, on Twitter. Said that the people of Utah want to impeach him. You can't impeach a senator. I mean, God, this guy is such an ignoramus. But, you know, Mitt Romney won his Senate race in Utah with like 67% of the vote. Utah wasn't that thrilled with Trump in 2016, by the way. They only voted for him at 45%. Evan McMullen, who I ended up voting for, got 21%. I mean, Mitt Romney's not up for re-election until 2024, so he can afford to speak out. Ben Sass said something. At least Charles Grassley came out and supported the whistleblower, at least. But these Republicans, man, they... They're killing me. They're killing me. They've got to speak up. When you start talking about foreign affairs and 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 national security um, compromises, like, come on, this goes far beyond just domestic policy disputes or winning an election. You got to do the right thing. You got to do the right thing. So, impeachment marches on, um, but Democrats are still issuing subpoenas, trying to get information. So. Eventually, there'll be a vote on the floor 
Nancy Pelosi's trying to avoid that right now, but there will be. There'll be a vote on the floor for an official impeachment inquiry. Um, but it, it they're marching on. And polls show that impeachment is, uh, support for it is actually over 50%. And I made a, I tweeted out on Saturday making a note of that because a couple polls have come out now and it's like a couple of them are over 50% support for impeachment, which is a lot. I mean, Richard Nixon at at the beginning of his impeachment inquiry was only support for impeachment was at 19%. So Trump is almost three times more than that right now. And we know how that ended, but I don't know. This is uh, fascinating. It, It really is. The Sunday shows, oh my God, Senator Ron Johnson got screamed at by Chuck Todd. (laughs) But I get it, man. These guys are just, they keep trying to put forth these conspiracy theories and anything to distract from the actual substance of what Trump is being accused of and what they know he's doing. They're throwing out everything, going back to 2016 and debunked conspiracy theories about about the Ukraine server and and uh, bringing up the whole Peter Strzok FBI lovers text messages and where did the origin of this of the Mueller report start? And I mean, come on, Ron Johnson, senator from Wisconsin, dude, you are chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. You know better too. And Chuck Todd like raised his voice at him. It was like, answer the question, senator. <laughs> For us political nerds, that's like a big deal because usually interviewers don't lose it. But uh, these people are just, they're exasperating. J- Jake Tapper raised his voice at Jim Jordan last weekend too because he was doing something similar. Not like over talking loudly and, and not letting the interviewer get a word in and spewing nonsense, just lies and propaganda. Um, it's hard to combat, you know? It's hard to combat, but we're trying our best. Giuliani's still out there. He melted down too. told uh, Howard Kurtz on Fox News to shush. <laughs> it was nuts. He was waving around papers. He told uh, Laura Ingram that he's here to, to disrupt the world. Oh, no, was it Laura or was it? No, no, no. I think it was Martha McCallum on Fox News that he was here to disrupt the world. Hi, hi, hi. They're all losing it. They're losing it. It's like they're melting down in real time in front of the American people. Uh, oh, my God. What else? Oh, well, okay. So something else. This issue with this Ukrainian um, server, right? Giuliani's running around and Fox News people are running around these conspiracy theories. And that's what they are. Conspiracy theories. And they play right into Russia's hands, by the way. The Russians were responsible for meddling in our elections in 2016. The Russians hacked into the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign. The Russians, not the Ukrainians, not anybody else. It was the damn Russians. It's undisputed. But yet Trump has throughout his presidency denied this, refuses to acknowledge it was them, we all saw Helsinki where he said, oh, Putin told me he didn't do it. I have no reason not to believe him. Even though just days before the intelligence community told him it was unequivocally the Russians. The Mueller report showed it was the Russians. Last week, I read from one of the indictments of one of the Russians involved in the whole operation and explained the level of detail that they went into meddling in our elections and the propaganda that they used not the Ukrainians. Something else. 
the Dutch intelligence services back in 2014 stumbled upon a Russian hacking operation. They were able to hack in themselves into a building that housed one of the Russian intelligence's um, intelligence agencies like hacking operation. Back in 2014, the Dutch did this. They were like, oh, holy shit, look what we found. So they were able to monitor the behavior of the Russian hackers for years. And then they were able to hack into the, into the surveillance cameras in the building so they could see who was coming and going. Of course, our Dutch counterparts shared this with U.S. intelligence. And they were watching in real time as they were trying to break into the State Department systems, into the NSA, all these things. And they were sharing that information with us. That information proved crucial when it came down to 2016, when that Russian hackers hacked into the DNC, etc. They had the proof. So this nonsense that it was anyone other than the Russians is exactly that. It's a freaking conspiracy theory BS. So don't believe it. This idea that the that Trump keeps throwing around that the Ukrainians have this the server and uh, this the company CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike is a world-renowned cybersecurity firm that is owned by a Russian-born American citizen. He's Russian, not Ukrainian. So the, so President Trump is w- wrong about that, number one. He's also wrong about the fact that um, that they took a server. Why? Where is this server? He's mixing up things, okay? It was the Hillary Clinton personal server that they were, they were questioning, like what happened to it, where was it, and all this and that. And then the DNC servers were never removed. CrowdStrike doesn't do that. They do forensic analysis of cybersecurity breaches. So he's not even getting his conspiracy theories right. And the freaking idea of this started on 4chan, which is a wackadoodle um, conspiracy theory site that has all kinds of nonsense on there. And it first started in the spring of 2017. And Rudy Giuliani picked this up and has been running with it. So this is what we're dealing with, folks. Conspiracy theory madness that's now entered into the mainstream because it's being uttered by the president of the United States and some Republican elected officials, all to distract from the wrongdoing of this president. And, you know, there's a lot of wrongdoing by this president. A lot. First, let me start off by what's happening with Turkey and Syria and the Kurds. This is breaking news right now. Um, the president decided to, I'm not going to get all into the weeds in this because it's kind of complicated, but when I worked in Capitol Hill, the congressman I worked for was very supportive of the Kurds in Northern Iraq and in Syria because they were, um, instrumental in our fight against ISIS and the Kurds, the Kurdish area of Iraq was, um, in Erbil was more stable. They're vicious fighters. They are dedicated allies of the United States, and we support them militarily. We train them. Um, They fought alongside us in Iraq and against ISIS. The Turks don't like the Kurds. They have, there's, you know, I'm not going to get into why, but they don't. They're enemies. But the United States support of the Kurds has kept the Turks at bay. So Trump has decided that he's basically withdrawing support from that area and Turkey can do whatever. That's awful, okay? Terrible message it sends to people who are allies and fight with us. Yeah, we're just going to leave you. 
horrible because they know the Turks can come in because they're backed by Iran and they can wipe out the Kurds. It's a whole thing. Well, this pissed off some Republicans, what do you know, like Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham's balls dropped and he decided to finally speak up against the president on something. He threatened sanctions against Turkey if they did anything to the Kurds. And people are like, who the hell did Trump consult about this decision? Because no one in their right mind in the foreign policy community or the defense community think that was a good strategic decision. Well, what was going on in Turkey? Well, Turkey, although they're in the EU, they shouldn't be, by the way, but they are. Erdogan is basically a dictator over there. And they've been a problematic, um, quote, ally for a number of reasons. And they're very close with Iran. And we need their airspace to conduct operations over in, in, in Iraq to fight ISIS. You know. So it's one of those very complicated relationships. But here's something that's not so complicated. Getting on, moving on to the corruption stuff going on with Trump. Donald Trump, surprise, surprise, has a Trump Tower in Istanbul. Yes, he does. And it was opened a couple years ago before he was president. Now, he doesn't actually own anything. He licenses his name. But what he does collect are royalties. And usually the percentage of the royalties they get are based on occupancy and the success of the property. So somebody else builds it and everything else, but they either manage it or and, and license their name, the use of their name. That's pretty much the the, the bulk of Trump's um, uh, company now. They don't really build much anymore. Other people build, they license and manage. So... He's got business interests there. And frankly, that should be concerning because back in um, 2016, BuzzFeed actually did a story. uh, It was December of 2016 called Trump's deals in Turkey align him with powerful partners. Because I suspected that that Trump had some personal interest in Turkey. And, you know, he cozies up to these dictators because he secretly dreams of you know, having their kinds of powers because the constitution in the U S gets in the way of his, of his dictatorial dreams. But this thing with, with Turkey, you know, Erdogan, who's the head of Turkey over there, not a good guy. He's a thug and corrupt like most of them. And this article from Buzzfeed, it, it, it's interesting because it talks about, um, quote, Trump, Trump's ties to Turkey include licensing deals with the head of the country's largest media media empire, run by a guy named Dorgan, a Dogan, Dogan, which includes CNN's Turkish edition and the premier newspaper, Heret, its most well-connected furniture firm, Dora, which caters to the country's most powerful institutions, and also Anar Mamadov, a billionaire executive of two Turkish construction companies, who's also the son of an Azerbaijan oligarch and transportation minister, who U.S. officials suspect of corrupt dealings with the Iran's Revolutionary Guard. That's according to leaked cables, um, diplomatic cables. So Trump is basically in business with a bunch of shady characters over there in Turkey. And one of the Trump and and there's so there's all kinds of back and forth about how much money and all of this. And according to Trump's disclosures, he's made between one and uh, no, wait, I think it's between three and 17 million dollars in royalties, according to his financial disclosures, since he took office in Turkey. What else? Um, 
the the Turkish furniture maker that he's in business with there. It's called Doria International. They're the ones that uh, produce Trump-branded furniture collections that often often feature the brand's signature marble and gilded brass. The head of that company, his name is Doric Jorgen Galgu. Forgive me, me for, for like totally butchering these names, but... Anyway, the head of that company, he said, quote, my partner is the president of the USA. <laughs> so he's using that to make money. Um, there's another interesting thing in this article. It says um, Michael Flynn. So remember him, the disgraced former national security advisor who pled guilty to lying to the FBI? Well, during the transition, he wrote a questionable, very fawning op-ed, pro-Turkey op-ed that he was paid to do and didn't disclose, by the way, because he had business there when he was in the private sector. And um, yeah, Michael Flynn raised eyebrows in Washington by penning a fawning essay about Turkey's Erdogan after his security intelligence firm was retained by a Dutch consulting firm owned by a leading Turkish businessman. Okay. You know, that's that, that that's not above board. It's Trump's soft underbelly, said the Ankara director of the German Marshall Fund, discussing Trump's business interest in Turkey. It's something that anyone who picks a fight with him can can use. So as long as relations between the Trump administration and Erdogan's government are going OK, this will remain a non-issue. But if at some point relations start to sour, this will become politicized. That was in 2016. Here we are three years later. There's some other interesting uh, things about Turkey. Rudy Giuliani represented a client who was in trouble for uh, illegal activities. And his name was Reza Zarab. He's a gold trader, friend of Erdogan's, lived in Trump Tower, by the way. And he basically engineered a money laundering scheme through a state-owned bank in Turkey. The U.S. Treasury Department has yet to sanction that bank. And Rudy Giuliani represented him and tried to pressure the U.S. government um, to basically release this guy and, and not prosecute him. Like, so, come on. This guy's name is Reza Zarab. He was accused of violating U.S. law by helping Iran evade economic sanctions related to the nuclear program. Giuliani revealed in an affidavit in April of 2017, this is from a Politico article, that he met with Turkish President Erdogan in an effort to resolve Zarab's case as part of some agreement between the U.S. and Turkey that will promote the national security interests of the U.S. What? Okay, so everybody's hands are dirty in this. You've got to be kidding me. This is where it's affecting national security interests and foreign policy interests of the United States and our allies. Come on. Messing with Turkey messes with Trump's pockets. It's obvious. That could be one one reason. Who knows what the hell else? I'm sure it'll come out. But I thought it was important for people to know what's going on there. Now, here's some other examples of of Trump's family corruption. I mean, it's the list is long, and we're going to talk even more about this in detail with uh, Vicki Ward, who's coming up next. But I just wanted to go down the list of a couple things to make you aware of. This is fact. It's open sourced, indisputable. You're welcome to Google it if you don't believe me. First of all, Trump has never divested from his company. Okay? Usually, that's what everyone does. I mean, we made freaking Jimmy Carter give up his peanut farm 
back when he won the presidency because they were worried about agricultural conflicts of interest. His peanut farm, okay? Donald Trump has a multi-billion dollar company with real estate all over the world and, and, and business interests all over the world. He is not divested from it. All he said was, well, I'm going to step down from running the Trump organization from day to day and hand it over to my sons. And I promise I'm not going to talk to them about it. Bullshit. Anyone who believes that Donald Trump believe his word that he's not talking to his sons about his business. I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Okay. He's talking to his damn sons about what's going on. Let's be real. There's no honor in that family. Donald Trump isn't an honorable guy. He's a fucking liar. He lies about everything and he's dishonest as hell. So come on. So he's still very much invested in his company. His hotel in Washington, D.C., he makes money from. His daughter, Ivanka Trump, made $4 million from that hotel just last year. Just from that hotel. There's reports that, there, that several foreign governments have bought up rooms that they never stayed in. The Trump organization claims that they donated any foreign profits to, to the treasury, but there's really no way to, to find out how much money that really is. They're claiming it's only a couple hundred thousand dollars. Bullshit. No way. No way. After the inauguration, hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent by the Saudis and the Qataris and everybody else trying to curry favor with this administration. That hotel right there is a problem. With the emoluments clause, there's been lawsuits against it. The crew, which is, um, they're a, um, um, an ethics group. I think it's citizens for the ethics in Washington or something. Citizens for responsible ethics in Washington crew. They calculate all this. So does ProPublica. They actually have a whole podcast dedicated to this conflicts of interest called Trump Inc. So that hotel is a problem. Okay. Mar-a-Lago, not only is it a security concern, Remember the Chinese chick that broke in and we don't know what the hell she was doing with all the electronics and everything else. Trump brings who, who the hell out, whoever he wants there. He had the Japanese um, prime minister there when he was like discussing classified missions and like strikes on Syria or something. Remember that? I mean, Mar-a-Lago is a problem. And basically anyone who who's a member there has access to Trump and can talk about whatever they want. There's these three guys that are members of Mar-a-Lago that have been meddling in the Veterans Affairs Administration and their their computer system for uh, medical information. And uh, what the hell are they doing meddling in this? It's wasted people's time. There's a crew did an expose on that. They got um, emails from people back and forth about like, oh, my God, these are people that are friends of the president. We have to entertain their questions. It's crazy. Why are they getting involved? The IRS commissioner currently, who is also being sued to turn over Trump's tax returns because of a law from 1924 that says that the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee has a right to the president's tax returns. Any actually any citizen's tax returns, if it's um, relevant to business. This guy has is investments in Trump branded properties. He makes money off of them. He's got he's got business interests. This is the guy responsible for complying with with congressional subpoenas and lawsuits about Trump's tax returns. How about Gary Sondland, who I mentioned is the ambassador to the EU, the one that's in the middle of this whole Ukraine thing, the one that's shilling for Trump saying, oh, no, no, it's not a quid pro quo. This guy had zero diplomatic experience. He was a hotelier before this from from Seattle, Washington. 
he donated a million dollars to the Trump inaugural foundation, the inaugural committee, a million dollars, one of 47 who did that. He basically bought his ambassadorship. Come on. That's not corrupt. By the way, Trump's inaugural committee is also under investigation by the Southern District of New York for all kinds of money laundering and misappropriation of funds and potential foreign money involvement in that because there's a lot less strict reporting for the inaugural committee versus a campaign. So that's currently under investigation as we speak. Ivanka Trump made sure that money from that inaugural committee was directed to the Trump International Hotel. Catering, rooms, all that. That's not corrupt. What about his sons flying around? His sons are jet-setting around the world at taxpayer expense because they fall under Secret Service protection because they're the kids of the, of the president. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer money has been spent on these two idiots flying all around the world conducting business for the president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've been to Uruguay, England, uh, England, UK, Ireland. You know, they've got golf courses there. They went to India. Hundreds of thousands of dollars these trips cost. One trip to the UAE where they went to open up one of the Trump golf courses cost $250,000. Mm-hmm. His sons have been running around. They went to India in 2018. Trump Jr. did. And... According to this report, he walked the red carpet, attended a ribbon cutting at a high rise overlooking the Arabian Sea in Mumbai, hosted champagne dinners for buyers and had a private um, meeting with India's prime minister, Modi. Yes, the one that was just here in Texas with the president, Mm -hmm, him. A full play, a full page, glossy newspaper ad offered those who put down $38,000 for a deposit on a new luxury project outside New Delhi. It gave them a chance to dine with the president's son, prompting charges of conflicts of interest. Trump's team boasted to reporters that it had sold $100 million worth of pricey flats, including $15 million in a single day. Donald Trump Jr. did this while the president's in office under Secret Service protection at taxpayer expense. Not a conflict of interest? You gotta be kidding me. They've sold off $110 million in Trump properties and assets to pay down debts for the company, including a property in Dominican Republic. I thought they weren't doing international deals. Yeah, well, they are still. They are. So, you know, they even tried, they have the audacity to actually come out now And both of them, Trump Jr. and Eric, trying to go after Hunter Biden and the Bidens. And they are just projecting they are more conflicted than anybody. And the president is currently in the White House. There is zero evidence that Hunter Biden did anything wrong. Zero. This nonsense, I will reiterate it again. This nonsense about him in the Ukraine and the Ukrainian uh, that that Vice President Biden pushed out the Ukrainian prosecutor because he was co- uh, investigating Hunter Biden's company is not true. The first of all, Biden was sanctioned by the uh, the U.S. government to be the messenger. That the U.S. government's official position was in order for us to continue investing in Ukraine, this corrupt prosecutor had to go because c- Ukraine is known for its corruption, and this guy was not investigating corrupt companies not investigating him. 
Hunter Biden's company, Burisma, the owner of that company was under investigation prior to him joining the board. That investigation was dormant. There was no investigation going on at the time. So this is, it's ridiculous. So the, so, so Biden went over there to push out uh, the prosecutor who wasn't investigating the company in favor of a prosecutor who then would, if the company was wrong, doing wrong, come on. It doesn't even make logical sense. So we already know that that's bullshit. It was the official position of the U.S. government, the IMF, and uh, the Western countries that that prosecutor had to go. That's it. There was no conflict. Now, this nonsense about China. This is the new thing now. Trump is running around saying that Hunter Biden went on a trip with with, uh, his father to China in 2013 and came back with $1.5 billion. False. What happened? Yes, Hunter Biden traveled with his father, which kids do all the time. I mean, the whole Trump clan went over to England for the, for the uh, meeting with the queen. Remember that? So come on. This is not uncommon. Hunter Biden co-founded um, something called Rosemont Seneca Partners with Christopher Hines, who's the stepson of John Kerry, and Devin Archer, who's another businessman and a classmate of Christopher Hines. They all went to Yale. So in 2012, Hunter Biden and Archer talked to a Chinese private equity investor named Jonathan Lee about joining forces on a fund that would invest in Chinese capital, that would invest Chinese capital and possible capital from other countries outside of China. And this is reported by the New Yorker magazine. In 2013, Lee and Archer agreed to establish the fund called BHR Partners and Hunter joined this group as an unpaid advisory board member, unpaid in 2013. In 2013, Hunter then, when he traveled with his father to Beijing, um, being friends with Lee, he said, look, when I was there, I went and had coffee with my friend. What am I going to not say hi? All right. However you want to feel about that, but that's his story. Fine. Now, he said that although he started off as an unpaid advisory board member of this fund, he did not become an investor in the fund until 2017 with a 10% stake. So it's about $400,000, $420,000. 2017, this is years after the fund was already started. Now, where the hell did this $1.5 billion number come from? It came from probably this book by Peter Schweitzer that he wrote in 2018 called Secret Empires, How the American Political Class Hides Corruption and Enriches Family and Friends. I haven't read that book, but I could imagine that the Trumps aren't exactly in that, and they should be. But apparently he goes after the Bidens on this, and he cites a 2014 Wall Street Journal article that said the BHR consortium aimed to raise $1.5 billion to invest outside of China. That's what they're talking about. They didn't even, they didn't invest that kind of money. It was 2014. Hunter Biden wasn't only, it was an unpaid advisory board member. He didn't walk out of China with $1.5 billion in 2013. He didn't get, he didn't invest in the company until four years later. So it's just lies, 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 lies coming out of Trump again. And, you know, and this is dangerous, man. This kind of propaganda stuff is coming straight, straight out of Russia's playbook. It helps Russia. And last week on the, on the podcast, I had John Cipher on. If you listened, if you didn't, you should go back and listen. 
He's a 28-year veteran, retired CIA spy stationed in Russia. He was head of Russian operations. He knows what these guys do. And I asked him, is Trump a useful idiot or is he a Russian asset? And he had an interesting answer. (laughs) Go back and listen to the episode. But, you know, we're talking about corruption. This president is rife with corruption and conflicts of interest and inappropriate behavior. I mean, that what I just read off was just a tip of the iceberg, tip of the iceberg. And we'll talk more in detail with Vicki Ward and her book, Kushner Inc., coming up next. Excited to bring in my next guest for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking because she has written an amazing book that is really timely given the environment we're in right now since our president has all of a sudden decided that he's like into corruption. He wants to fight it, yet he's surrounded by it. And Vicki Ward is not only a senior reporter for CNN, my colleague over at CNN, but she's also the author of a book called Kushner Inc. Greed, Ambition, Corruption. What a perfect person to talk about the environment we're in right now. Vicki Ward, welcome to Honestly Speaking this week. Thank you, Tara. So um, I had a chance to briefly talk to Vicki a couple months ago when I was uh, guest hosting for Michael Smirconish's radio show on SiriusXM, except that it was right in the middle of the mass shootings in Ohio and Texas. So we didn't really get to have a robust conversation. I forgot what was going on then, but there was something else that was happening with the White House and the Kush- and Jared Kushner and Ivanka that I felt you, you could talk to. It was also the Jeffrey Epstein stuff, which you've done uh, amazing reporting on as well. But um, now that we are in this broader discussion of corruption, which I find laughable coming from the president of the United States and from his acolytes who seem to think that this is a legitimate crusade of his all of a sudden, I wanted to talk to you about your book. I read this book um, back when I was preparing to interview you in August, and I just could not believe the level of conflict of interest going on in the White House with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Um, When you were writing this book, was there any point where you were just like, how is this possibly allowed? (laughs) What were were you thinking as you were researching this book? And then I'm going to get into some of the details. Well, I I think that one of the things that really struck me as I was reporting it with how appalled the people around Jared and Ivanka in the cabinet, uh, in very senior White House and administration positions were by um, Jared and Ivanka's complete obliviousness for ethics. And, you know, I mean, it began with sort of Gary Cohn, uh, who, you know, gave up, you know, had come in as as, uh, president of Goldman Sachs and had taken the rules seriously, had gone out and divested, which is what you're supposed to do when you go into uh, the White House. I mean, that's why it's called public service. It's not called (laughs) self-service. And Jared had spent the entire sort of transition telling Gary Cohn how expensive it was going to be for him to get into government. 
Um, and so when sort of everyone's, you know, when reports started dribbling out that in fact, Jared had really not properly divested um, of really anything. And then th there were reports that he and his father had been having secret meetings with the Chinese um, during the transition. Well, at the same time as Jared was supposed to be in charge of foreign outreach, um, you know, People like Gary Cohn, Rex Tillerson, who was then you know, about to go through confirmation hearings to be um, Secretary of State, another very wealthy man who had to uh, divest himself of everything to come into office. And, and even um, the people sort of more right-wing than them, Steve Bannon, Ryan Spivis, everybody was horrified um, by all this. I think another sort of huge moment for me was when um, I was told by my sources that it hadn't actually been President Trump who closed the White House visitor locks, which mm -hmm. historically, you know, the American people have a have a right to see. Um, you know, it's part of our democratic process. It had actually been Jared Kushner because he didn't want the public to see his private networking going on. And um, the public wouldn't have been amused to know uh, that Jared was in fact meeting with Lloyd Blankfein, who was then running Goldman Sachs, which was then uh, an investor in a company that Jared had not, not only uh, not divested himself from, he hadn't actually disclosed it, he hadn't put it on his uh, on his official White House form. So the appearance of extraordinary uh, lack of ethics, extraordinary conflicts of interest um, with Jared were remarkable. The other thing that I reported in the book was how there's this entity on his White House disclosure forms called Brothers, so it's called BFPS. And what I actually report in the book, the BFPS, was known by people who knew the Krishnas to stand for Brothers First, Partners Second. Mm. And it was historically a profit-sharing vehicle by which Jared and his brother Josh Kushner um, could divvy up their, the profits from their respective um, businesses. So that, again, creates all sorts of um, in, you know, questions because, you know, what is, because, you know, basically has, if, if Jared has now handed off all his business interests into a trust run by his brother, well, that's not really a divestiture if the brothers have made an agreement to share their profits. I mean, the uh, Josh Kushner denied to the book that, that, that BFPS, that it was, that there was currently a profit sharing, um, vehicle in existence. But that's certainly historically what Jared told people this thing was. So you have, you have all of that, but I think the, the very worst reveal in the book is really to do with Jared's uh, foreign policy making yes. uh, because it was done in the shadows. Um, you know, Rex Tillerson, who thought that he was supposed to be the Secretary of State, um, was 
completely horrified and shocked and taken aback when two days after, well, not two days, maybe in 10 days after uh, President Trump had made this trip to Saudi Arabia where... The summit, the, the summit was supposed to be all about cooperation in the Gulf, fighting uh, terrorism, and how all the Gulf states were now going to get on with each other. And Jared had been the one really, really pushing for the president's first trip abroad, official trip abroad, to be to Saudi Arabia, which is not a country that exactly shares our democratic values. And Tillerson and Mattis had been skeptical about all of this, but had sort of gone along with it. And then 10 days later, they're in Australia and they learn to their dismay that Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, their big ally, uh, with but Qatar. yes, these have had gone ahead, blockaded Qatar, which is where uh, the U.S. has its airbase, the Al Ahly airbase. I've been there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tillerson knew, as did James Mattis, that the Saudis would never have dared. Uh, blockade a country that contains an America, a United States airbase if they hadn't had a green light from the White House. And they very quickly learned that the green light had come from Jared Kushner. Let me stop, and, let me stop you there really quickly, just to kind of um, uh, put some of these things into perspective. Because for a lot of people listening to this, this is the first time they're hearing about all of these conflicts of interest. And this is just the tip of the iceberg uh, concerning Jared Kushner. You know, he's known as the the wonderkind. He's the, He's been put in charge of all kinds of really important things in the White House, despite having zero experience in any of them. I've been very critical of, of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump being in the White House um, from day one. I thought it was completely inappropriate and reeked of conflicts of interest and nepotism. And the issue with Qatar, well, first let me start with what you mentioned about the the White House visitor logs being locked down. That was something that I did not know until I read your book was that Jared Kushner was behind that. This whole time I thought it was Trump that was doing it. It was to find out that it was actually Kushner and the reason why was to hide the fact that he was basically networking um, with lots of folks who could do – who could help his, his family businesses. Um, right. and, then, and then later on, it was John Kelly who discovered some of these questionable meetings, and he reversed that that policy, from what I understand. So I think the White House visitor logs are now public again, or were well, at least while he was there. Who knows what's happening now? It's it's <laughs> complete chaos in the White well, House. Well, no, they, they 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 are, and that is why a year later we found out we we found out that that Lloyd Blankfein had been in the White House and and had met with Jared. We didn't know this for a year because there was no transparency. Right, that's right. And then the idea that, well, you have a whole chapter in your book called The Secretary of Everything, which is interesting because it talks about how Jared was really involving himself in all kinds of areas, much to the chagrin of the professional policy and political folks in the White House, because they were like, this guy doesn't know shit from Shinola about a lot of this. But he seems to have no problem meeting with someone or meeting with foreign contacts who can help his his uh, companies financially. You talk about the establishment of this White House Office of, of American Innovation 
and how yes. Steve Bannon was really against this because he looked at it as crony capitalism at its worst. And you say that Ivanka and Jared were the lobbyists for it. Um, one of the, give, a, give a couple of examples of how Jared was using this Office of, of American Innovation really to just pad his Rolodex with people who were financially connected that could help his family, his companies. <laughs> Right. So, you know, I've mentioned earlier this entity, Brothers First, Partners Second. And so you have to remember that uh, Josh Kushner, who is a registered Democrat and has kept, you know, optically very far apart um, from his brother. But he's a he's a very big venture capitalist. And, and he is a lot of the companies that he invests in are the tech world. And so... Um, you knowing now, which which we no one knew, sort of before my book came out, that there w- there was a profit sharing vehicle between these two brothers. The fact that Jared and Ivanka, or Jared with this the, the, this council, are inviting people like Tim Cook of Apple into the White House, or you know Sheryl Sandberg, I think was there. Um, all these big financiers. It does raise questions. Well, you know. Uh, what's it all? What's it all for? And don't forget that. And, and Steve Bannon's argument is that uh, these people don't really believe in the Trump agenda. And it, it, and it certainly was true that after Charlottesville, uh, the whole thing fell apart, right? Sure. Um, so you know, again, I mean, it, what 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 is so interesting about Jared and Ivanka is how polarizing they are in the sense that um, they claimed to be um, sort of a moderating force. They claimed to be the people who were going to go into the White House and um, temper Trump's most extreme uh, impulses. And yet, in fact, they upset the left just as much as they upset the right, because, you know, for example, when it came to climate change, uh, you know, Gary Cohen was sort of tearing his hair out, trying to persuade the president to listen to his argument about why America should not withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords. And, you know, Ivanka had been on television endlessly sort of saying, you know, I speak to my father in private. And, you know, he listens to what I say in private. He knows what I think. And, And he said, well, you know, Ivanka, this would be a great moment for you to tell your father what you think because Gary Cohen sensed that they were losing momentum on the climate change debate and she turned around and she said to to Gary Cohen no no I absolutely couldn't do that so I mean you know so it raises the question what what, what is Ivanka actually doing other than other than and you know I've talked a lot about Jared I haven't got to her Um, she seemed to uh, endlessly either be on telephone calls with foreign leaders or in the room with them uh, shortly before those countries would give her fashion brand, what, which she kept going uh, for the first 18 months of the administration, it got a remarkably large number of trademarks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a particularly astonishing moment where the Chinese premier arrived and you know the same day there were a huge number of trademarks to the uh, Ivanka Trump fashion brand and 
it, I think after eight months, 18 months rather, the, the, the controversy about that grew so deafening that uh, she closed it. You know, you know, she, she actually, she, she listened to the noise. She closed it down. There were, there were skeptics who said, well, it's also not making any money. Perhaps that would be a reason. Um, but the fact right that right after, right after Trump won, her fashion brand took a major hit. I remember this because I talked about it on CNN, uh, Nordstrom and, and Bloom right. and whoever, they got rid of her line because Trump had been so ridiculous with the Muslim bands and acting crazy the first couple of weeks of his, of his um, right. election. I mean, uh, you know, out of out of Right. And of course, Tara, what does that mean? If from a commercial point of view, that means that she's even more reliant Correct. on foreign uh, success. Right. And even more reliant on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, the, the fact that these this couple sort of so brazenly thought that they could go into the White House for kind of self-service rather than public service and paper over what they were really doing with public relations. Um, you know, I mean, there are two people who have, who really believe that good PR can, can solve any problem. And, and you um, mentioned in your book that, that they hired their own personal uh, PR representative when they got to the White House, which people yes. looked at. They side-eyed them going like, why do you need this? Well, as we've seen, all the controversy they've gotten in, they needed a PR person to spin things um, because they'd screwed up so royally more than one time. Right. But I mean, this was, again, unprecedented. Nobody, you know, you know, I mean, the fact that even they were even there was, you know, controversial enough. I I mean, I write in the book that the the sort of great irony of their hiring uh, was that the person who greenlit it was actually Steve Bannon, uh, who, of course, became their great nemesis and eventually they 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 got rid of him but he did it because he thought based on the campaign and based on billy bush weekend that when the president really really grew irate that nobody could get to him other than ivanka and that was the only his only reasoning to sort of go against actually what the justice department the opinion of the justice department which was that, okay, we can make an exception for Jared, but we don't really want to do it. And we don't really want to do it partly because of, of the potential for corruption. Um, well, you but also, I just wanted to bring that up since you, uh, since you brought up the Justice Department. Um, you talk about on page 133 of your book about how the FBI's assistant director in charge of counterintelligence warned Jared Kushner that he was seen as a target for influence by operatives from several different countries, including Russia, China, and Israel. And mm-hmm. that um, that because of his family's considerable debts, specifically their property on 666 Fifth Avenue, which I want to talk about in a minute, um, that it opened him up to be possibly manipulated or taken advantage of because of the, the company's need to pay off this massive debt. And Kushner ignored this warning. He was told, you know, you really need to back off getting involved in foreign affairs issues. And he was just like, yeah, whatever. And instead of pulling back, he actually basically amped up his solo act as this shadow diplomat, despite uh, having a secretary of state like Rex Tillerson and others whose job it was to actually effectuate foreign policy on behalf of the the United States, not on behalf of what's best for the Kushner company. 
Um, right. Let's talk a little bit about 666 Fifth Avenue because this yeah. is something that I, I just can't believe has not gotten more attention. I guess just because there's just so much happening that it gets it falls by the wayside. But Jared Kushner, um, besides the fact that he never should have had a security clearance in the first place because he omitted hundreds of contacts that he had, he had to resubmit his security clearance form multiple times. Um, he did not disclose contacts he had with Russians, with uh, with uh, the Saudis, with a bunch of folks prior to his taking um, the position in the White House. And a lot of it had to do with this this property in New York, which was a, a bill, a building that he took on that was supposed to be the, the crown jewel of his of his family company's real estate business, and it turned out to be a disaster of a deal. And now they had a billion and a half dollar mortgage payment coming up on this, and they were trying to get it refinanced. And a lot of people believe that this was the main reason why Josh Kushner decided, I mean, uh, Jared Kushner decided to take this job so that he could rub elbows with really wealthy folks from places like Qatar, China, and Saudi Arabia. Pick it up from there, Vicky. Yeah, well, that's that's entirely right, because by the time, so what's important to, to note is by the time Jared goes into the White House, it's become abundantly clear that the clock is ticking. The Kushners need to find uh, about one and a half billion dollars, you're entirely right, to save themselves, uh, or save themselves financially, and that no domestic lender or investor is going to touch this thing is one of uh, one of their partners in it said it would be worth more if it was just dirt. Okay, <laughs> so the it's a it's a disaster, and that is why during the transition, Jared and his father had this private meeting with a Chinese insurance company, and 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 don't talk mention it to any of their Jared doesn't mention it to any of his transition colleagues who are so completely horrified when they learn about it because at the same time Jared's been having. Uh, official meetings with the Chinese um, who've flown in for, for government business. The Chinese disappear. What what Rex Tillerson could not have known is the the, the May or the first May of the uh, administration. So before um, the president goes to Saudi Arabia, the Qatari uh, Qataris come to town and meet with Jared's father. Jared's father asks for a billion dollars and the Qataris turn them down. Now, you have to remember that Qatar and Saudi Arabia are longtime rivals right. they don't uh, in, in the Gulf. They don't get along. <clears throat> and, but the Qataris are very, very rich, richer than the Saudis. Mm-hmm. And so um, it is in that context that Every, the, the, the president's delegation goes to Saudi Arabia. Jared is seen by many people to go off, have a private dinner with MBS, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, with whom he becomes, uh, you know, very friendly, has all sorts of secret communications. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a meeting to which the Qataris claimed they were not invited about security in the region. And then... The Saudis, with Jared's permission, blockade get Qatar. That's right. Um, and so, what? It's at that point that Rex Tillerson and James Mattis think that Jared's gone from being just irritating to downright dangerous. But what they 
did not know, had absolutely no idea, nor did any of us for another year, was that there was, that there was, you know, there were financial reasons for Jared mm-hmm. to uh, want to uh, suck up to Saudi Arabia and to want to put pressure on Qatar. And, um, you know, what was, what, well, I, you know, as the year then comes round, the clock is still ticking. Uh, we then enter 2018. The Krishnas have still not solved their problems with 666 Fifth Avenue. MBS arrives um, to see Trump, and Trump asks him for four billion dollars for a lot of money. And MBS pulls back and says, "You know, that's that that I I don't have that money." The Qataris see an opening. They very quickly, the Emir of Qatar, six weeks later, arrives in Washington and says, I've got lots of money, but I've got this problem. I've got I've got a blockade going on. Mm-hmm. So two things happen two weeks apart from each other. One is that a Canadian company whose largest outside investor is the Qatari Investment Authority does a deal that makes absolutely no sense to anyone in the world of New York real estate to bail out the Kushners, uh, where they're going to pay all the rent for this building. They're going to, the sum is too much money, and they're going to pay this rent up front. <laughs> Um, and at the same time, the U.S. announces, Mike Pompeo says, uh, the U.S. is going to withdraw its support for the blockade in Qatar. How convenient. So, I mean, that is just the smoking gun. Absolutely. And and I just to, I mean, that is unbelievable right there. And Donald Trump has the audacity to go, to run around claiming that there's corruption with the Bidens because Hunter Biden sat on a board of a Ukrainian gas company while his father was vice president. You've got to be freaking kidding me. You could criticize the optics of that, but there was no wrongdoing in this in this instance and in numerous instances. I mean, you talk about how Jared Kushner got in the middle, much to the chagrin of Rex Tillerson at the time, in the middle of the, the arms deal with Saudi Arabia, you know, hundred and something billion dollars in, in arms sales. Uh, and, right. And they're like, what are you doing? This is not how that works. Um, right. Issue with with the with with their property at six 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 fifth. Clear quid pro quo going on there. So that's the the word of the the month now. Um, bailing their company out. And just to remind people, the Kushners are wealthy real estate um, uh, a re- real estate dynasty. Also, mostly in New Jersey and New York, but they have properties other places like Baltimore, where they're slumlords. By the way, that's a whole other discussion. But their family is ruthless. And you talk about right. this, um, you know, I, I find Jared Kushner to just be a, a very strangely effeminate weirdo in his, in his demeanor. <laughs> and I just don't get it. But what, reading your reporting and your book about him, I'm like, he comes from a really ruthless family. His father's a bastard. And he went to prison 
And a certain governor of my home state, New Jersey, put him there, um, which also brings kind of another dynamic into the conversation about Jared Kushner's role in the in the transition and the and uh, the campaign with Chris Christie, how he screwed right. Chris Christie over because Chris Christie's the one who put his father in jail. And that tale and people, you've you've got to read the uh, Vicky's book, Kushner Inc. because the beginning of it talks all about kind of the rise of the Kushner family and his father. Um, um, and those dynamics and oh, man, you want to talk about drama and like a soap opera? It's nuts. So, but I'll let people read your book to get that part. But I just wanted to put that in there to show that Jared Kushner is also pretty ruthless, despite his boyish, uh, you know, disposition. He's actually quite ruthless behind closed doors. And, Very uh, right. And his family. Another example of where they where they were using um, their access to power was this EB five program. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? I'll just say, I'll brief it real quick. EB-5 is a visa program that's in place for foreign investment into dilapidated areas that need revitalization, usually in rural areas in the United States, where if you have a certain amount of foreign investment that creates jobs, you get green cards in exchange for it. Push or sh- basically, that's how it goes. There's a lot of fraud and abuse with this program. I know because I worked on immigration issues when I worked in Capitol Hill, and this was one of those examples, especially with the Chinese. And the Kushners right. were all up on the Chinese trying to get Chinese money for their property. So talk about what happened with the EB-5 program and how they got in trouble with it. Yeah, so they went – so Nicole, Jared's sister, um, was sent uh, by her father to – to China to go solicit investment using this EB-5 uh, program. Um, and as you point out, uh, Tara, that there is a lot of abuse. It wasn't for a dilapidated area at all. But that wasn't the worst of it. The, uh, she then, as she got, got up on stage, showed a picture of um, the president and made it, it was, became very clear that, uh, you know, that her brother was um, the president, you know, picture of Trump and uh, their name is Kushner. It was, it was very clear, you know, influence, access for, you know, influence. And um, didn't they kick all the reporters out of the room? They they kicked, yes, they kicked, they kicked all the reporters out. They said it's a, and and they said it's a private event and it had not been listed as a private event. And um, somebody I spoke to for the book said that it would have been in keeping with Charles Kushner to have quite deliberately um, uh, not sent a translator with Nicole um, because uh, basically sort of the less explaining, the less she knew, the less explaining she would have to do. And the publicist who said that the Krishnas should apologize for what had happened, which they did um, after the whole thing was reported, um, was fired because Charles Krishna said, we didn't do anything wrong. We shouldn't have to apologize. And that is the mentality of the Kushners. They really believe, they believe that rules are for other people. Well, that sounds familiar. So Ivanka married her father, basically, uh, married into a family that's just as ruthless, if not more so than her, her own. And it's right. They, so the Kushners are putting, giving in this presentation 
to Chinese investors trying to use the EB-5 program. They show a, a slide presentation with Jared Kushner in it showing his proximity to the president of the United States. And they apologize for that, saying, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, that was inappropriate. And, and Charles Kushner says, no, we didn't do anything wrong and fires the person who did the right thing. It's, um, right. it's just a microcosm of of what's going on and what is now. These people have access to the White House. I mean, Jared Kushner's, um, just his, his influence there and what he's been doing, that list is so long. Uh, a couple months ago, I did a whole podcast dedicated to, actually more than that, it was last year, it was after the Khashoggi murder, about Jared Kushner's back-channeling with MBS in Saudi Arabia and, his, and the fact that he's reading presidential daily briefs which are one of the most highly classified documents in the federal government. And Trump doesn't read. So Kushner was reading them. And there was some speculation, it's not been proven, but speculation that Jared Kushner was feeding some of this information back to the Saudis. And that's why they decided to go on this this uh, purge of MBS's potential political rivals where they jailed or tortured or killed many of his political rivals shortly after he made this secret trip to Saudi Arabia that was not sanctioned by Rex Tillerson at the time. And no, not at all. Um, right. Yes, and I, I, I say in the book, you know, Rex Tillerson says to Jared, you know, because the, the MBS's excuse when he rounds up all the, the the ruling branches of the of, of the Saudi royal family, except for his own, accusing them of corruption. Tillerson says to Jared, Jared, don't you think it's a bit strange that the only branch of uh, the Saudi royal family that's not corrupt is MBS's own? Because <laughs> <laughs> he needed that no. money, he needed their money. <laughs> exactly correct. That's right. Um, uh, one, one last uh, couple, well, actually just a couple more examples and then I'll, I'll let you go because there's so much going on. Uh, the breaking news today, obviously, is Trump's decision to basically sell out the Kurds to Turkey, which is um, a, a terribly ill-advised decision. I hope that, they're, that they reverse course. But I, the first thing that came to my mind when I saw this was, okay, so there's a Trump Tower in Turkey, and right. Donald Trump is sold out to Erdogan, who is not our friend, and in bed with our enemies, and this is, and you know, people are freaking out over over this decision, rightfully so, even Republicans for once. What do you know? But I, I was thinking of, of all of the just further examples of, of conflict of interest and corruption. In your book, you bring up something about health care policy because it's more than just people there trying to get rich. They're effectuating policy that, that has an impact on people's lives, which is you know why we have nepotism laws is to avoid this and why we have financial disclosure to avoid this kind of stuff. So there's transparency. And you talk about right. the health care debate and how Josh Kushner, Jared's brother, has ownership in a company called Oscar right. that yep. that stent, you know but would benefit from Obamacare being in existence not and a repeal right. would be financially devastating to them and how Jared Kushner inserted himself into the Obamacare repeal debate um, much to the chagrin of Steve Bannon and others because they're like wait what are you doing this is against our agenda and then we find out why right so and and yes so and and Jared was, you know, he got. Um, I, I say in the book, he got uh, Joel Klein, who works with his brother, to talk to Gary Cohn um, about it. And 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 Gary Cohn didn't, you know, just didn't like 
the fact that anybody who worked with Josh Kushner was being inserted into the healthcare debate. And then Jared kept popping up with all these um, ideas that were clearly slanted towards the business model of uh, his brother's company. At one point, someone told me that, you know, that, that, that various people suggested, well, why don't we have, why don't we completely be revolutionary? Why don't we have a single payer healthcare system? <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, you would think if Jared was a real Democrat, you know, progressive, that would be perfect. But of course, it's not perfect because it wouldn't at all fit his brother's business model. So he he had absolutely no tolerance for that whatsoever. So I'm, I mean, to your point, Tara, I mean, all of this uh, just goes to the point that, you know, we have nepotism laws for a reason. They shouldn't be there. And, you know, and this is, and this is unlike the, the Hunter Biden, where, you know, people have done timelines. Now it's been really reported out that the timeline of what, you know, Joe Biden's activities in Ukraine would, did not coincide. That's right. Um, Jared Kushner's deal making at the expense of our country yes. is happening in real, real time. time. <laughs> yes, under as we speak, our it's eyes. Still happening. Yes. It's still happening. And it's not only it's dangerous. Yes. And that's the point of the book. It's really dangerous. What's the end game here, Vicky? I mean, Donald Trump just put Jared Kushner in charge of the impeachment response. Well, so I'm well, I'm hearing mixed uh, reporting on that. You know, I mean, uh, Jared has said he's in charge of impeachment, but actually, other people I think are pushing back on that. He doesn't have the experience, um, and I think they've looked at the track record of. You know, somebody said to me last week, you know, Jared's not a finisher. He hasn't finished any of the things mm-hmm. he set he set out to do. He hasn't finished immigration. He hasn't. You know, he just hasn't. He hasn't finished anything. Um, no infrastructure. So, no Middle East. Peace, and and. No, no, yeah. Right. And you talk about that in the book, how people discovered that he's actually not quite as uh, accomplished and smart as as Trump made him out to be or as, as he thinks he is, because he almost completely screwed up the, the campaign, didn't know the book right. screwed up, you know, and it was like, wait, this is more of a facade. He likes to delegate. He doesn't like to necessarily get in the weeds and actually do the work. He likes the idea of the pomp and circumstance. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I think that the obvious hypocrisy of this might be uh, too overwhelming for Jared and Ivanka. I was actually told, you know, other people have noticed that you haven't seen much of them in the last week or so. And they've shied well away from the topic of impeachment, because I think... It's it, this one is really close to the bone for them. He he would be, but if, if I was a, if I was a PR advisor, which is an extremely unlikely scenario, um, given what I think of Jared Nivanka, um, I I would tell them to stay a million miles away from this one because I think it will only backfire on them. Sure. I mean, if anybody ever started to really focus as much energy as they have on other things into Jared and Ivanka. And the conflicts of interest right. and just the graft. It's, it's just, I mean, the, the grift. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, even in your book, you say that even Trump d- recognizes that they don't really want anybody 
around on that because it'll turn right. around then it'll start to go to him and his, and, and his direct conflicts are just that's something else right. I, I talk about a little bit in my in my opening statement uh, just some of the examples of, of his conflicts um, and you know when you were talking about the, the some of the meetings I mean you talk about in your book how he had meetings with someone from Apollo Global Management who uh, lent his 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 company for yep. million dollars uh, Citigroup was another uh, That's right. someone that he met with that lent the Kushner companies $325 million to finance the mortgage on office buildings in Brooklyn. I mean, this is direct corruption in real time. And that's why um, people just right. kind of tune this all out. But I wish that there would be more attention paid to this, which is why I wanted to, to bring you on to talk about it, because people need to be informed. This is happening. This is, these are facts. This is undisputable. We didn't make this up. This isn't the fake news media. This isn't the corrupt media. Um, oh, speaking of, one last thing, and then I'll let you go. Jared Kushner hates CNN. And this was was something that I was reported on at the time. And obviously, being a CNN contributor, I was paying attention to. So CNN is part of Time Warner, which was in the middle of a merger with AT&T. And when, um, when, when the Trump administration took over... Jared Kushner actually inserted himself into that discussion. You talk about that in the book a little bit. What, what happened with, with Jared Kushner and the, the AT&T merger? If I remember, uh, and you, forgive me, Tara, because you have to remember, I wrote this book. Uh, I actually handed it in December. So right, the, right, yeah. you, you're up on the. But he he called for a meeting, didn't he, with uh, someone he knew from Time, Time Warner. At Time Warner, yeah, and he told them that they needed to fire everyone um, who worked for CNN. And he did try to sort of imply, right, that he'd get in the middle of that deal, That's if right. I remember correctly. That's right. He did, and then there, then the Justice Department, um, they had initially blocked. The, the deal. Right. And most people, and it had already been approved up the chain through all the different, you know, the SEC and everything else. And then all of a sudden, the Department of Justice said, no, no, we think that there's, um, you know, an issue with antitrust laws or something like that. Right, right, right. Simply just retribution because it, there was no reason for it. And then it was overruled by a judge. And the Justice Department had to decide were they going to appeal that ruling and try to continue to block the merger. And eventually, I guess, they realized they couldn't get away with with, uh, trying to look legitimate anymore, and they decided to let let the merger go through. But the fact that Jared Kushner thought that, and the arrogance of him, to think that he could intervene in that and complain about certain... I mean, he literally complained about specific commentators at CNN. Right. It was reported, I think, from Anna Navarro to... um, uh, Don Lemon and Van Jones. He didn't like the coverage of CNN, and uh, you know, <laughs> unbelievable yeah. the, the arrogance of these people. But well, but you have to remember that these are people who specifically went out and bought a newspaper after right. Charles Kushner went to jail because they saw it as a way. Uh, to correct the mistakes of the past, they saw it as a way to control uh, the media. This is what they're all about. They think that money that, that, that money buys everything. Well, um, so far it has bought them everything, and until the American people wake up and demand that they want more transparency in their government, that corruption is not okay, nepotism is not okay, and that this administration and what they've done is not okay. People like this are going to continue to get away with it, but um, we have to keep 
putting the information out there and informing the American people or else they're never going to know. And Vicki Ward, you've done an amazing job with this book. You're doing a great job at CNN. Um, welcome aboard. And Thank you. you have, there's other books. You guys can check out Vicki's other books. And um, if more Jeffrey Epstein news ever comes up, I'll have you back to talk about that. Cause, uh, oh, it will. Don't worry. Oh that story's gosh. still going. <laughs> Vicki was uh, there early on before a lot, of, uh, a lot of what we know about Jeffrey Epstein was public. So we'll have to bring you back on and talk more about that. Vicki Ward, how can people find you? Uh, Vicki.ward at CNN.com. Uh, the, uh, what is my Twitter handle? Vicki PJ Ward. There you go. And make sure to check out her book, Kushner Inc. It is fascinating. Vicki, thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. This week's episode of Honestly Speaking, I have an excellent writer, a McKay Coppins, who I've been following his work since his BuzzFeed days, and he's... Um he now writes for The Atlantic. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. He's also the author of a book called The Wilderness, which is basically about the battle over the future of the Republican Party, which I can relate to since I'm on the front lines of that every day. Um, but McKay also wrote this amazing cover story for this month's issue of The Atlantic called Succession. And it's all about the Trump family dynamics and the power struggle between Ivanka, Don Jr., and Jared. And Eric, I guess, is in there, too. Um, the power struggle between them, the who's going to be the next heir in in the Trump family saga here. So I wanted to bring McKay on to talk about that because I think it's relevant given the times that we're living in and all the news coming out and what's happening. So McKay Coppins, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thanks for having me on. So as I mentioned in your intro, you wrote this long form story called Succession for the it was the cover story of, of this month's issue of The Atlantic. And there were some some anecdotes and some facts in there that I really didn't know. And I followed this stuff pretty closely. But I really had no idea that there was this major power struggle between the Trump kids, uh, particularly Ivanka and Don Jr. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. What First of all, what made you decide to to write this story? Well, it's interesting. This is a, a first family whose members are much more involved in the presidency than we've been accustomed to. No um, <laughs> the first... <laughs> but, but what was interesting, you know, there's been a ton of reporting on kind of Ivanka and Jared and Don individually. But as I was kind of reading through it, I realized, I think it was sometime early this year, that I didn't really know that much about the dynamics between the siblings, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And every family, you know, everyone knows every family has its own kind of complicated dynamics and sibling rivalries. And I just wondered what the dynamics were in this family, especially given how high the stakes are for everyone else. And so I started to look into it. I was not expecting necessarily to find this particular story. But what I found is that uh, there really is this kind of quiet but intense succession battle going on 
between particularly the two oldest children, Don Jr. and Ivanka, and then by extension, uh, Jared Kushner and Eric to a lesser extent, all sort of jockeying for position and trying to get their piece of the kingdom, as it were, you know, position themselves as the heir apparent to uh, Donald Trump's political legacy. And, and you know, the one thing that I... I I really kind of kept coming back to was that everybody who's followed this family at all kind of knows that Ivanka has always been the favorite, right? She's the golden child. She's the one that Trump was grooming to kind of become the face of the Trump empire when she was gone. But once Donald Trump was elected president, the whole family business kind of changed from being about real estate and television to being about politics. And in the political sphere, it turned out that Don Jr. was much better suited to the kind of brand of politics that Donald Trump was championing. And Ivanka has found herself sort of out of her depth and adrift in the White House as she struggles to make a dent in policymaking, which is something she doesn't have a lot of experience in. So you've started to see over the last couple of years a changing of the dynamic where Donald Trump still seems to prefer Ivanka, but he's starting to recognize that Don Jr. is the one with the more natural connection to his base. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, in your piece, you, uh, which was the, one of the more fascinating parts of it for me, uh, you talk about that, how Don Jr. has seemingly struggled throughout his life to really gain his father's affection. And that's something that people have made fun of. It's been somewhat of a, I think it's a sad commentary just because the family dynamics are just so screwed up with this family that it's just, I can't imagine having someone like Donald Trump as your father where he's constantly pitting the kids against each other, telling them don't, don't ever trust anyone, including him. Like it's just, it's crazy. But he seems to, Don Jr., uh, as you write in this piece, you talk about how he took the divorce from Ivana Trump the hardest and that he kind of um, tried to distance himself from his father for years, even though at the same time he was like desperate for his affection. Uh, talk a little bit how, about how Don, Don Jr., how he kind of made this transformation from being the I don't want to talk to my father because I hate him to trying to now prove himself worthy of the political heir. Yeah, it's a great question, because the thing about that, the the divorce between Donald and Ivana is that it was widely covered at the time. And if you were kind of a consumer of celebrity gossip or tabloid press in the 90s, you knew a lot about this divorce. Yeah, um, I, I, I I'm from you know, Jersey. I say it all the time. <laughs> I, I grew up in the New York metro area. So Donald Trump, the idea of Donald Trump as president horrified me from the beginning because I just knew what kind of a person he was. But that's right. part of it. I mean, everybody remembered that the the I mean it was splashed all over the place because that's you know the New York Post and all the all the uh, yep. glitz and glamour yep. of the tab it was very juicy stuff back then but go ahead I feel bad well for no kids. so that's the but, thing so well that's the thing I was going back and rereading a lot of those clips um, and, and those stories from that era with the kids in mind in particular, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of a different experience reading through that stuff when you're thinking about these young kids, because at the time they divorced, Don Jr. was 12 years old. 
and you know he's seeing uh you know these really kind of graphic um stories about donald trump's sex life with his mistress on the cover of the the new york post uh and he's having to deal with all this and he reacted as i write in the piece with anger he lashed out at his dad he you know there's one story where he apparently said to to his dad how can you say that you love us Mm -hmm. and actually went a full year maybe even longer it depends on the account without speaking to Trump, uh, kind of just really became alienated from his father over this whole thing. Now, he went to boarding school, then he went to college, and I write in the piece about how he was always kind of all through his childhood, adolescence, and even young adulthood kind of haunted by this episode of this divorce. I quote one uh, fraternity brother of his who recalled Don crying, breaking down in tears at a a party uh, and and talking about how how much he hates his dad and he doesn't want anybody to know that his last name is Trump. Uh, You know, this really had kind of, this, this was a major episode in his life and it still was affecting him. Now, over time, he he graduated from college and he uh, moved out to Colorado to kind of become a ski bum and a bartender. And and it kind of looked like he might not join the family business like he was expected to. But over time, the kind of gravitational pull of his father brought him back to New York, brought him back into the Trump organization. And since then, he has been sort of seen as the screw-up son in a lot of ways. You know, he he would get into trouble a lot. He There's a New York Post story about how he... Uh, he got in a fight. Somebody smashed a beer stein over his head uh, at a comic comedy club because uh, they thought he was reacting too enthusiastically to Chris Rock's ethnic humor. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, there was at you go through kind of the, the clips from that time. You see a lot of stuff about this. But the whole time, you're absolutely right. He clearly wanted his father's affection. And it really wasn't until. Uh, 2016, when his father started running for president and courting rural Republican voters, that Don Jr. became really useful to his father. Because Don Jr., uh, unlike the rest of his family, was this avid outdoorsman. He was a hunter. He was a gun rights enthusiast. In a lot of ways, he was the only member of the family who seemed to actually have a conservative worldview uh, before, like, kind of somewhat fully formed before the, the 2016 campaign. And so Don Jr., would get sent out on these photo ops and he would get sent out to, you know, court voters at hunting expos and county fairs. And he sort of, you know, in 2016, Ivanka was the one who was getting all the attention, but Don Jr. was sort of building his own grassroots fan base uh, quietly in a way that a lot of people who aren't plugged into that world might not have noticed, but he became sort of a MAGA folk hero um, uh, throughout the 2016 campaign. And he had that base after his father won to continue to build on. And, and he's continued to do that to this day. Yeah, let's, uh, in, in your story, you talk about how uh, this this became something that finally Trump noticed him, you know, like you said, became useful. And even with that popularity, Trump was still reticent to really give him any kind of uh, front and center role he because it was all about Miss mm-hmm. Ivanka. Ivanka. I mean, we all see the very strange, almost obsession that Trump has with his daughter 
from the way that he sexualized her from the time she was young, the conversations on Howard Stern, which would have been disturbing for most well-adjusted fathers listening to a man talk about his daughter the way that he does. It's very odd. Um, Another uh, point, anecdote that you bring up before I talk about um, Don Jr.'s political rise you say that uh, when during the divorce, Ivanka was eight, and she freaked out and said, oh, my God, am I not going to be Ivanka Trump anymore? And she had a very different mm-hmm. reaction than Don Jr. She actually did everything she could to remain closer to her father. You mentioned how she would go to his office like every day after school. And so yep. that was clearly where that bond uh, really grew between the two of them and so you can see yeah. she was daddy's pet and Don Jr. was adrift and poor little Eric he was just you know <laughs> he was just there you know poor, <laughs> poor Eric you know well he was I mean the, the divorce I think still mattered to Eric but he was you know five years old at right. the time so it, it was he, he was a little bit more protected from it but I, I do think that this is an important point because whereas Don lashed out at Trump uh, after the divorce Ivanka clung to him more tightly, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, to stop by his office, once she went to boarding school, she would call home all the time and talk to him. And she would like later talk about how he would interrupt important meetings to take her call. And she was really kind of deliberate and meticulous about cultivating this relationship with her father. You know, it wasn't just an accident that she became his favorite. She kind of made sure that that was the case. That's right. Um, and which translates and, into how he react, how he interacts with them now with this with this deni- mm-hmm. dynamic in Washington, which has kind of turned it upside down. Because Ivanka is not the one that everyone is fawning over or who's become the most politically useful. She's also she's kind of become a liability in ways with him, along with her husband, even though he still um, gives Jared, Jared Kushner an awful lot of responsibility. Someone else who has no experience in any of the areas that he's been given responsibility. But uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, In your piece, you say about Don Jr., being the one that's, you know, with the guns and running around. Trump frowned on that before the election, right? Because he saw that kind of, when he saw pictures of, of Don Jr. with the trophies of the big game hunting, which I think is disgusting. I think it was an elephant, a cut off elephant tail or something. He was just yeah. like, oh my God. Like, you know, he looked at him kind of, he looked down on him. Just like he looks down on most of his supporters who do that, by the way, people. Donald yeah, Trump I mean, doesn't like you. He looks down on you people. <laughs> but anyway, you say uh, Mike Cernovich, you, you quote him, who's a far right-wing guy you say he's one of the bros um he has classically me- yeah. he, is, he has a classically masculine personality and you don't feel like he's a snob he really likes the mean culture it's not fake for him well that's a hell of an endorsement right <laughs> <laughs> well, well that's the thing in God. certain conservative circles it, it actually right. is it, right. it is an endorsement and yeah. so and this is the thing so it, yeah, this is an, gets at an important dynamic, though, here, because Trump always ne- – he never understood the hunting thing, right? Don Jr., it, the way that he got into hunting was by uh, spending time with his grandfather, Ivana's father, uh, out in the woods hunting. And that, that's kind of how he became an outdoorsman. Trump never understood it. He looked down on it. He found it annoying. I think he found it kind of low class or yes. low rent in a way. Which is ironic. Um, and, 
<laughs> well, and so he would kind of roll his eyes at it. And it wasn't until the, the campaign started and, and Trump realized that, oh, wait, this could actually be an asset for me, that, that he, he deployed Don, I quote one uh, former Trump aide who says that, that Trump said something to Don like, uh, oh, you can finally you can finally do something for me, Don. Um, you know? oh so that, that was kind of the dynamic between them. If, but this gets an important contrast because Ivanka and Jared, part of the reason that Trump gravitates to them so much is that they, at least prior to the campaign, kind of had a firmly established place in these elite Upper East Side social circles that had always kind of looked down on Trump, right? Trump, uh, as much, as rich as he is, as powerful as he was, as famous as he was, he never really got on the inside of the kind of uh, elitist Manhattan world. They, they still kind of saw him as a buffoon or a caricature or a cartoon character. Accurately. But Ivanka, ac- <laughs> well, Ivanka actually, uh, you know, did kind of succeed at courting that world. Uh, she was invited to the, you know, dinner parties at penthouses where Trump never would have been uh, invited. And so Trump, to a certain extent, was kind of living vicariously through his daughter and son-in-law, but also I think saw the possibility that they could bring respectability to the Trump name uh, that, that they had kind of never had, right? And so th- that's part of why he found Ivanka so appealing as a successor. And it, it's part of, you know, again, why Don never seemed like a, a likely successor. But again, the family business changed in November of 2016 and, and everything was kind of turned upside down. You mentioned the uh, that there's tension between Don Jr. and Jared because Don didn't like the idea that Trump was giving all of this responsibility to Jared. It was almost like he was replacing, yeah. ja- uh, replacing him with Jared. And the Trump Tower meeting, the ill-fated Trump Tower meeting during the election, which which was the center of the Mueller report and other uh, areas where we looked at possible collusion with the Russians, that that was actually an effort for to for Don Jr. to try to insert himself and prove that he could bring value to the campaign. And what a screw up that mm-hmm. was! Um, I know. Oh my God, the poor guy. You know he can't he can't win. He can, he, he tries. He's like. Look, Dad, I'm doing something cool. I'm going to get you dirt on Hillary Clinton. We got it. And then we saw what happened there. And then so as things went on, I mean, it, it was it was kind of funny because, um, it, you know, Jared gets more and more responsibility. He gets more and more people put into the administration. Jared has all of this influence over over. Trump, and it's Don Jr. now who is quietly building this political base to the point where people are legitimately, right-wing people, are legitimately talking about him running for office. And Trump still really hasn't warmed up to that idea. In your article, you talk about someone mentioning that he could run possibly for mayor, and that he he said his father quickly shut it down. Don's not going to run for mayor, he said with an, in an interview with Sean Hannity. But Trump couldn't put an end to his son's political career that easily. By the end of the election, Don's budding MAGA stardom was undeniable. Going back to doing deals is boring, he reportedly told a gathering of gun enthusiasts. The politics bug bit me. Well, what else? Another bug that bit him was Kimberly Guilfoyle. And, you know, Don, this is another very high profile uh, relationship, similar to kind of how his dad just 
divorced his mom in public. Well, Don Jr. divorced his wife of 12 years. They have five kids together. And next thing you know, he's running around with Fox, former Fox News anchor Kimberly Guilfoyle. And Trump was not approving. How come? Well, there are a couple reasons. Um, you know, one reason is that Trump had apparently never really thought that Gilfoyle was a serious person or, or somebody that should be part of his administration. I report that uh, Gilfoyle had kind of openly lobbied to become the press secretary, White House press secretary, mm-hmm. and Trump just showed no interest in that. Um, I, I quote a, uh, uh, a former uh, Trump aide who says, uh, even he can tell the difference between the attractive women on Fox who have a little bit of substance and those who will be derided as airheads. And so that, that's part of the dynamic here. But, you know, there's another dynamic, which is that um, I, I spoke to a longtime Trump advisor who said uh, that over the years, Trump had frequently made uh, suggestive comments about Gilfoyle's attractiveness <laughs> and more than once kind of asked about who she was dating. Um, and so wow. just now, now she's dating his son that you can imagine how that might kind of make for an awkward dynamic. Yeah. And she wasn't invited to the family Thanksgiving dinner, apparently that, <laughs> that year, that would have been yeah. a little awkward, but I mean, they, now she's part of the campaign they're very public with their with their relationship and they've kind of become a one two punch because she's very popular with the right wing mm-hmm. um, voter voting base and in media because of her time at Fox News. And uh, and on a personal note, I like Kimberly. We've met before. She's always been very nice to me. I just obviously I don't support the decision she's made now to become a full MAGA. But um, that's an interesting dynamic to watch. I wonder whether it's transactional or if it's a, if it's the real deal. I guess we'll we'll find out after the election. Um, something else about Don Jr. and his father's relationship, just kind of the how harsh it is that he was Donald Trump was reluctant to name his first son after him, after his namesake, because he was concerned that what if the son, what if he's a screw up, right, basically? And what if he's a loser what if he's is a what, loser? what Trump that's reportedly right. asked. That's yeah, right. that's and right. Who says that? You know, I mean, that, that's, it just speaks volumes yeah. about how dysfunctional Donald Trump really is. But you also quote uh, an instance where he was watching cable news coverage of of another Don Jr. fiasco and that he just shook his head wearily. Quote, he wasn't angry at Don, said a former White House official. It was more like he was resigned to his son's idiocy. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, Trump said with a sigh. That's horrible. You think Don Jr. doesn't know that? I mean, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it's, the, 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 tra- the thing about this story is that I don't think I fully understood when I sort of started working on it that how tragic it would be in certain ways. You know, it almost makes you feel to sorry. a lot of readers... Right. To a lot of readers, the Trump kids are not inherently sympathetic figures, right? They are, they're born into privilege and wealth. And to a lot of people, they have used that privilege and wealth to, uh, you know, to help themselves and hurt others. That, that's the kind of uh, central critique of them, right? But what, what I've really figured out as I've worked on this story and any kind of story like this, when you're spending months on it and talking to dozens of people and trying to really craft a, 
uh, an in-depth story, you inherently find the empathy um, and, and the the thing the kind of uh, <laughs> that you feel sorry for. And I do think uh, at a certain level, uh, all of these kids deserve some pity, uh, if nothing else, only because the relationship with their father is not like a traditional relationship. Now, that doesn't excuse anything that's not, you know, sure. uh, explaining away what they've done. But the, the, their relationship with their father is a lot complicated, a, a lot darker, um, a lot kind of, frankly, stranger and more dysfunctional uh, than most father-son or father-daughter relationships. And once you start to understand the depths of that complexity, uh, you, you start to understand kind of where they're coming from. And yep. uh, it informs a lot of what they're doing now. Absolutely. And your your story really goes into that. And um, I, I hope people take the time to read it at The Atlantic because it's uh, it really is a fascinating look into this because Trump tries to put he during the campaign for sure he tried to take credit for the successes of his children when he really had nothing to do with raising them Ivana raised them uh, he was an absentee father for the most part because he was too busy running around with his second wife at the time and what's interesting about your story uh, is it's pages and pages and there's not one mention of Tiffany Trump what is, I mean, there's, about- there, <laughs> there is one. Oh, I made one. sure there was exactly right, one. Right, one. Um, there, there's one mention of Tiffany and one mention of Barron. Now, obviously, I was never going to write about Barron. He's, he's still a kid. Yeah. Uh, I think that we should give him some privacy. Um, Tiffany is still pretty young, too. But the thing about Tiffany is she was never, you know, even you mentioned that Trump was kind of an absentee father. He was still more involved in the lives of his three oldest children than he was Tiffany, right? Uh, once he and Marla divorced, uh, Marla moved out to California with Tiffany. Trump wasn't as involved uh, in her life. He he didn't keep up with her as much uh, by by a lot of accounts. And she was not really ever seen as part of this kind of competition among the top three kids for affection and status within the Trump empire. Um, now she's, you know she's in law school and... Do we know why? Why is I mean, that? I, I mean, I no, I'm asking. Oh, oh, I thought I thought you were going to present a theory. Well, I mean, I have um, a theory. I think I, the theory I, was that she was not exactly conceived in love, and that he didn't really want to marry Marla Maples, and so he saw that whole situation as a mistake. Well, that's. I mean, maybe, but I, I think that the a lot of it is just purely logistical. It was a short. It was a shorter marriage. She lived out in California. Trump doesn't make a lot of time for fatherhood or parenthood anyway, at least when they're kids. Does it require and so I think that a, a lot <laughs> a lot of those those factors play a role. But I, I think that um, I, I do think that she's trying to become more a part of the family now. Um, she's going to law school in Washington, D.C. She's spoken publicly about wanting to join the family business. Um, and so we might be hearing more from Tiffany in the years ahead. I, I, I'd be curious to see if that actually happens because you ne- almost never hear Trump talk about her affectionately. She's not included in almost anything they do unless they need a family photo op. I, I just, you just, it, it's almost like she's an afterthought and um, why she would want to be associated with this mess is beyond me. But I guess the allure of power and having a powerful name is hard to hard to um, 
not want to be a part of it, I guess. I don't know. But that whole situation is very odd to me. Just like the Sun Baron, there's something very strange about that whole situation. But because he's a kid, I'm not going to speculate anymore about that. Other than to say it's very odd. Um, let's talk a little bit. Oh, one last thing before we talk about your, your recent piece uh, about Mike Pence, because I think that that's interesting given what's going on with the whole impeachment thing in Ukraine. But one last thing about Ivanka, which I, which I just thought was hilarious, is when she was in, um, again, with her trying to be this international figure and this influencer, which has failed miserably because neither her nor her husband should be in the White House. It's pure nepotism. They've made tens of millions of dollars. Trump runs around talking about corruption. And I mean, all you have to do is look right in his own backyard in the White House with these two, making all this money. Um, but when she was in uh, Osaka, Japan recently, over the summer, there was a really funny meme that went around because of a, an incident with her and trying to insert herself into a conversation. And it started the whole hashtag unwanted Ivanka. Can you just talk about that a little mm -hmm. bit and remind people? Because it was so glorious when it happened. <laughs> well, so, you know, she went to uh, Osaka for the G20 summit. And after the meeting, it was actually the French government that posted this, this short video clip uh, showing Ivanka kind of standing there with a, a bunch of other world leaders, all of whom were kind of side-eyeing her and, and, uh, and almost ignoring her as she kind of awkwardly tried to insert herself into the conversation. And so the clip was posted, quickly went viral, spawned this hashtag you mentioned, unwanted Ivanka. And, uh, you know, everyone was kind of doing these parody photoshops where they were ins inserting Ivanka into great. great moments in history. Uh, <laughs> so it's like her mugging for the camera at the March on Washington or like sitting landing. next to Winston Churchill yeah. at Yalta or, yeah, the moon <laughs> landing. Um, <laughs> and it was it, it did. It was one of those like memes that actually did capture a, a like fundamental truth which yes. is that Ivanka has always been out of her depth in this world and has really not succeeded in gaining credibility or seriousness. Now, I think a lot, you, you talk to a lot of kind of uh, corporate titans or world leaders, and, and they will say that like Ivanka is their person in the White House because they think that she actually cares about, you know, courting their respect, but it doesn't seem like they actually respect her that much. Um, and, and, and that is the tragedy of Ivanka's story. You know, she joined the White House thinking that her proximity to the Oval Office would give her status and respectability and stature in the world community. And instead, it's kind of led to her becoming this international punchline. For sure. Uh, you end your piece saying, while no one knew when Donald Trump would exit, while no one knew when Donald Trump would exit the White House, it was clear that he would leave behind when he, what he would leave behind when he did, an angry, paranoid scrap of the country, eager to buy what he was hawking, and an heir who knew how to keep the con alive, talking about Don Jr., which that scares the hell out of me, that even though Trump might has to go finally at some point, we might have to deal with Don Jr. Uh, coming up through the ranks. God help this country if that happens. Um, in a couple minutes that we have left, I just wanted to touch on your, your latest article on um, Vice President Pence, because he's another one who uh, a lot who has been the, the, the subject of much fodder 
because of how much he mm. just uh, the sycophancy, the way he carries the water for Trump, how he just stands there like a bump on a log most of the time. Um, but he's actually more well liked by Congress than Donald Trump is because they know him when he was a, a congressman and a governor. And he, despite his very um, strange demeanor and belief system to some, he knows how he knows how things work, and he you know he doesn't exactly thrive off of pushing the guardrails of the Constitution out, uh, you know, out there. But you, the, the, the article is called When a Vice President Becomes a Threat, the Fragility of Mike Pence's Partnership with Trump Could Soon Be on Full Display. How come? Well, you know, Mike Pence is a much more conventional Republican, a much more conventional conservative. Um, and look, in any kind of White House that is under siege, uh, the vice president is a radioactive subject, right? Because uh, everyone's always thinking about the guy waiting in the wings, right? And so we have an impeachment inquiry happening right now. Um, what I wanted to do is kind of take the temperature of this relationship. You know, in public, Mike Pence is uh, extremely loyal and obedient and subservient to Trump, almost kind of theatrically so. Yes. Um, but I've written about Pence over the last couple of years. I actually profiled him uh, back at the beginning of 2018. And I wrote about how Pence is actually much more ambitious than he lets on, mm -hmm. right? Um, there was a moment in the 2016 campaign, and I think this is an important moment for everyone to keep in mind as we watch the impeachment proceedings go on, where the Access Hollywood tape came out it was a crisis for the campaign. Uh, a bunch of Republicans were withdrawing their endorsements. Conservative editorial pages were calling on Trump to drop out. Um, and in the midst of all of that, some of the people in Trump's orbit stood firmly by him. And Mike Pence was MIA. He basically uh, withdrew from the campaign for 48 hours, issued a disapproving statement uh, saying that he can't condone or defend Trump's remarks on that tape. And I actually report that he made it clear privately to the RNC that he was ready to step in and take the top of the ticket if necessary. So basically take over for Trump. Um, and now, obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, the polls stabilized. Trump ended up winning. Mike Pence quickly got back in line. But to a lot of kind of Trump loyalists, that showed the actual situation with Trump and Pence, which is that Pence will be extremely loyal to Trump as long as it's in his political interest. And he'll make sure that everybody sees how loyal he is. But if there comes a moment where he actually thinks it will be in his best political interest to turn on Trump, most people don't think he would hesitate. And so that's that's something to keep in mind going forward. That's very interesting, considering how Trump thrust him into the Ukraine controversy. And there's, yep. a, there's been yep. talk and there's still talk about Trump that not fully trusting Mike Pence and and floating the idea of getting rid of him for the uh, for the reelection. And, um, you know, th this whole thing about Nikki Haley possibly waiting in the wings. Um, and if Trump is in trouble, that he wouldn't hesitate to get rid of Trump and, and I mean, get rid of Pence and make some kind of major move to rejuvenate his campaign. I, I find that fascinating. I think Nikki Haley would be a fool to do that. But um, that's another dynamic that I'm that I'm paying attention to. 
with that. Um, yes. As we close, I, I just, I find it fascinating that you were one of the reporters who was kind of on the Trump trail before the Trump trail was a thing. And back when you were working for BuzzFeed, you actually wrote an article called 36 Hours on the Fake Campaign Trail with Donald Trump in 2014, where it didn't seem like he was serious about running. When you look back to that time compared to what you see now, how, what, what has been some of the more shocking parts of what you see now compared to how Trump was running back then? Because I didn't think he was serious either. Yeah, I mean, I, I always, whenever I'm asked about this, I always start off with the, the confession that, like, of course, I got it wrong that Trump would never run for president. You're in good what, company. What I, <laughs> what, <laughs> well, what I realized, though, as I've kind of revisited that reporting and done a lot more reporting is that I was one of many, many kind of, in Trump's view, sneering insiders over the course of his life who always doubted him, who never took him seriously, never gave him the respect that he felt he deserved. And that's kind of fueled him throughout his career. You can actually look at Trump's life and career as one long kind of revenge march against the haters, mm-hmm. right? What, what, of which I was one of them. And so I actually think at the time I wrote that, I think I was right that Trump wasn't going to really run for president. Um, I think he decided to later because so, so if nothing else to prove the haters wrong, I don't think he thought he would get this far. But one thing I will say is watching him as president and watching these, especially kind of these episodes where he's, you know, tweeting outlandish things where his kind of insecurities are on full display. None of that surprised me because I saw that up close. I spent two days with him and, um, the biggest takeaway was that this is a guy who has who's a lot more insecure, a lot more anxious uh, than than you a lot of people realized at the time. Now, I think five years later, most of the world has kind of come to terms with his status anxiety and his insecurities and his grievance, and they've seen that all now for for a long time. But. It, but I, I do think that's kind of the defining characteristic of him. And I, I got a front row seat uh, to that, that whole kind of uh, festival of, of emotions and grievance back uh, five years ago. Yep. And your assessment is consistent with anyone who spent any amount of time with Donald Trump from people who have profiled him in you know books and biographies, uh, who've done articles. They all say the same thing, and uh, which is... In a, which is his insecurities, his idiosyncrasies, his obsession with things, the, the grievance mongering, the victim, and all of those things that we see, like you said, on display every day yep. through his Twitter feed, were all there before. And it's just amazing still to me how so many people in this country overlooked those things and thought that he would make let's put someone with these characteristics in the most powerful position in the world yeah that makes a lot of sense that's going to end well no it's not we see what a disaster it's become and and i tried to warn you a lot of us tried to warn you people but nobody wanted to listen and here we are mckay coppins it's been an absolute pleasure uh check out his cover story succession was that because of the show the, the show succession, by the way. Uh, it was a, a subtle nod to the show, yes, that we, we all enjoy here at the Atlantic. <laughs> Fantastic show. Actually, Anderson Cooper got me into watching that show because we, we Anderson and I talk all the time about Billions and a couple other shows that we watch, and he's like, succession is better than Billions. I said, no, that can't be possible. 
And so that's how it got me. Yeah, that's how I started watching. So I'm still on season one because I'm new to it. But he's right. It's very, very good. I'm not going to say it's better than Billions. It's just different. The writing is comparable. The acting, the storyline, it's very riveting. um, But it's different. So anyway, uh, shout out to Succession. McKay Coppins, how can people find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at McKay Coffins, uh, and you can uh, check out my author page at The Atlantic. Um, and uh, yeah, we're doing a lot of good stuff over there. Subscribe to The Atlantic. We we uh, need all the support we can get at this at this uh, this era of, of politics and journalism. Sure. But uh, yeah, you can check out my stuff and, and the stuff of all my good colleagues over there. Absolutely. There's also another excellent op-ed up there by George Conway called "Unfit." With all he does like an 11,000 word dissertation just dissecting brilliantly why Donald Trump is unfit to be president of the United States. And yes, that's George Conway, Kellyanne Conway's husband. Thank you to The Atlantic. Uh, you guys do great work over there. Thank you, McKay Coppins. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again, I think, I suspect, at some point during this campaign because it's going to be a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Thanks, Thanks so much, McKay. Again, a big thank you to this week's guests, Vicki Ward and McKay Coppins. Um, pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. Trump family dynamics and just the corruption going on in this White House. My God. Well, um, before I finish up, I have to have a feel good story because, again, it's been heavy stuff. And this week I want to feature an organization called Veterans Community Project. It's based in Kansas City, Missouri. And what they do is they, they've built this village of tiny homes for vets. So these are the tiny homes they are about 280 square feet and they use them to help homeless veterans transition into back into society. And it was brought to national attention because Jason Kander, who was the secretary of state for Missouri, he decided to run for mayor of Kansas city and dropped out. A couple weeks before the election, he was a a veteran and 38 years old, rising star in the Democratic Party. But he dropped out of the race suddenly because he had unresolved PTSD issues. And he recognized that and decided that he needed to get treatment. And he said that while he was um, campaigning, that he became familiar with this veterans community project and decided to go back to them for help in navigating services for mental health. Because they offer, not only do they offer homes, transitional housing for homeless veterans, but they have services for them. So if you need mental health services, PTSD treatment, addiction treatment, you need help finding a job, um, paying down debts, navigating the VA, things like that. So it's an all-purpose place to help veterans, which I think is fantastic. And it's 100% private funded, privately funded, all by donations. It was started in 2016 by three combat veterans. They decided that um, the VA just wasn't cutting it and that they really needed to do something that offered direct services to help so many vets that need help. And I think that's fabulous. Um, The average stay is about 10 to 14 months, even though they say that there's no limit on how long a veteran can stay. They can stay as long as they need to to get on their feet. And they stock these tiny homes with everything you need from new appliances to dishes and pans and linens. And they say, hey, you're welcome to take all of that with you when you're ready to move on to your own home. They're like, you can take whatever you need with you, appliances included, to help you get started, which I think is cool. 
And um, I think that, you know, it's really important to promote organizations like this because people, you don't know, the government run programs, they're not always run the best. And to see this happen, um, they have 49 houses right now in their village and they're looking to expand to into eight more cities in the next three years. And they're getting ready to break ground in a town called Longmont, Colorado for their second um, village. And a lot of cities are reaching out to try to replicate the success of this program. So good for them in Kansas City, Missouri, veteranscommunityproject.org if you want to learn more about them or donate to uh, help homeless vets get on their feet. So that's my feel-good story of the week. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Honest Speaking with Tara. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram, at Tara Setmayer on Twitter, and the podcast Twitter feed is honestly underscore Tara. See you next week.